Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode two, which is another telehealth-centric or telehealth-focused episode. This week, however, we're going to be talking about something a little bit more interesting and a little bit more out of the norm of the, the typical, traditional, quote, biomedical frame of reference. So this isn't like a, a shoulder clinic that moved into telehealth or that moved virtually. This practice is a pretty interesting concept. Uh, my guest is Sheila Ivlev. She's an occupational therapist out of San Francisco, the great state of California. But her practice focuses primarily on wellness and on a specific type of wellness being mental health and emotional well-being or emotional wellness. So she talks a little bit about some of her practices, some of the techniques she used and uses in her day-to-day. And we also dive into some of the ins and outs of telehealth, particularly in this type of setting or practice area where we're dealing with different types of consent, particularly with groups and group treatments. And obviously, if, if you've got three or four people on a Zoom call or on some kind of telehealth platform, there's just more risks to, to personal information being exposed. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about her practice in general and kind of her focus in in her practice on creating strategies and habits to deal with stress and anxiety. Uh, She calls uh, emotional resiliency, boosting some self-esteem and confidence. And we talked a little bit about, I I threw a couple questions at her. So let's say somebody's got this issue going on at work and they're dealing with stress. How might you deal with it? So she gives a little bit of insight on that as well. Hopefully you find this a valuable and informative episode. Again, our goal is that you walk away from these episodes or these little snippets here, these interviews, with some kind of practical advice. So even if it's what platform to use or how you would use it and and thinking about consent or changing the way you would think about delivering your healthcare services, that's our goal. So without further ado, I'm going to take you right into the episode. So here is Sheila Ivlev from OT Bay Area Mental Health and Wellness Practice. Hey, Sheila. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself? You're an OT, so tell us kind of how you got into OT and then where you're at now professionally, and we'll dive into the, the topic at hand, which is telehealth. Yeah, sounds good. So I'm an occupational therapist. And I actually had a few careers before I became an OT. I worked in mental health as a counselor. And then I realized that that didn't pay the bills. So I had a corporate career for a while. And it just wasn't meaningful for me. So I knew that I had to do something that felt good, um, that made me feel good about going into work every day. And I realized that I probably needed to go back to school for that. So um, I looked into OT and PT, and I actually did my volunteer hours 
simultaneously so I could get experience in both fields and see which one seemed like a better fit. And OT just like, you know, it was it was perfect for me, super holistic, looked at every aspect of the person. So became an OT. I've worked for major Bay Area hospitals. I've worked in business, but I've been working in mental health throughout my career. And I, like I said, I've worked for major hospitals. I also worked for the VA, which I know that you're familiar with. Oh, and, yeah. I'm familiar yeah. with the VA. <laughs> the, the thing that I really loved about the VA, though, is that you're really not held down um, by the traditional healthcare model, the insurance reimbursement model. Um, so I felt pretty empowered as an OT to do what I felt was necessary for my clients. Yeah, um, I thought that same thing when I was there. Yeah. I could see clients for as much or as little as, as we needed you to get get the results we needed for them. It was a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I got to go into people's homes. I got to retrofit homes, like, you know, really no caps in equipment as long as it was appropriate, medically necessary. So all of those things were great. I also have been a clinical educator. So taught a clinical mental health class. So there was actually a clinic on campus with people from the community working with occupational therapy, graduate occupational therapy students, uh, completely free clinic, standalone OT, which is um, not, not very common. Yeah. So, you know, just between all my experience and be, especially being able to have the standalone OT program that's free and focused on mental health, I knew that I wanted to do more with all the experience that I had. Um, and I wanted to do something that was like beyond the control and limits of insurance. So that's when I decided, decided to start my own practice. Yeah. And that's basically, from what I can tell, you're doing mental health, you're doing wellness, you're kind of doing the whole gamut for your clients, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I don't need somebody to come to me because they have a referral from a doctor. I don't need a diagnosis. Anyone that is looking to improve their physical and emotional health, I'm working with. Yeah, that's awesome. And we'll catch, we'll put your, the link to your practice and all that in the show notes so people can find you. Okay. But let's move on to, to telehealth. So how did you get started in telehealth? You you did it at the VA, right? That's when you were ro- they were rolling out an initiative there. Yeah, so the VA actually has been doing telehealth for quite a while and the type of telehealth that I did was from um, one VA facility to another VA facility. So I worked at the San Francisco VA which covers a huge Northern California region. So there are a lot of veterans that live um, in super remote areas that would have to travel, you know, four or more hours to the San Francisco VA just in one direction to be seen. So there are several clinics throughout um, the VA system. So it's not a full hospital, um, but like an outpatient clinic. Yeah, CBOX, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Several of those actually have telehealth technicians that are working at that facility. So I was able to be the clinician and have a telehealth technician on the other side. So I did mobility assessments. I fit and trained people on um, you know manual and power mobility devices. So I got to do a lot remotely because I had somebody there that was hands-on. So definitely different than what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a different model. And it's, it's nice that the VA kind of has this, they've got this huge nationwide system. And we had the same thing at, at the Augusta VA where we had the Athens CBOC and we could telehealth in. And it's nice to have a technician mm-hmm. that can make the adjustment here, do that there. 
and that sort exactly. of thing. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I know that um, for a while now that the VA has been trying to get people um, secure devices in their homes as well, but that's not the model that I used. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit then about the kind of conditions did you treat? Was it all like physical dysfunction or was there a mental health aspect to it? How did it work? Um, not for telehealth. So what I did at the VA for telehealth was all um, for physical conditions. So, you know, anything from neurological conditions, progressive conditions. So obviously ALS, MS, you know, any neurological conditions in which people weren't improving and needed some help with mobility. They needed some kind of device um, to be able to access their home, access their communities. Yeah. So it was Basically, in a almost an equipment like a a wheelchair clinic or something like that. Yeah, so exactly. So positioning and that sort of thing. Exactly. So a mobility clinic, so seating, positioning devices. Exactly. And I did a lot of home retrofitting, fitting, but that's something that I had to be there in person for. So with the telehealth, it really was just seeing how somebody moves, taking measurements, training them how to use the devices, while I was able to watch them and somebody was their hands on um, complying with my instructions. Yeah. Was it the patient by themselves a lot of times or did they have family members or caregivers um, present? A lot of patients had family members and caregivers present. Again, if you think about people who have um, limited mobility or mobility issues, they may not be able to drive a vehicle by themselves. So they're still having to get to that clinic. Yeah. So um, the nice part was that, you know, family training was being done along with the patient. Yeah. Okay. As far as that method of service delivery, are you still doing telehealth today? In your practice? I'm doing telehealth in my personal practice, but it is purely wellness, mental health, okay. not mobility. So you're I'm doing, doing that, some ergonomics. Yeah. Um, a so a lot of that is, I love when I talk about telehealth with folks, I always talk about the opportunity that telehealth has, at least the way I see it, is it allows us to still do those like high value, high impact treatments. So the coaching, the empowerment self-management right. skills. And it sounds like what you're doing currently is kind of in that area, right? You're helping people develop yes. lifestyle patterns and that sort of thing. Yes, exactly. You know, I, I call it resilient skills. So oh, really like skills to help you be able to deal with everything that's going on in your life, you know, whether it's emotional, current events, um, even physical pain. Yeah. So are you teaching mindfulness techniques and that thing, that kind of thing over the um, interwebs? Mindfulness is, is a part of it, but really, you know, um, so I do individual and I do groups okay. and my groups are very small. So everyone that's in a group has already had a one-on-one -on -one assessment again over telehealth. So people are grouped based on what their goals are, you know, what's important to them, what they want to work on. So if it's mindfulness, it's really practical mindfulness. How are you able to incorporate into incorporate it into everyday life? Okay, cool deal. Oh, I want to dive into that whole idea of small, <laughs> like goal-driven groups in a minute. But so you've been on both sides on doing very much like a, a physical dysfunction model of telehealth and then kind of this new like holistic telehealth that's out there, the coaching, the empowerment, wellness. Yeah. From your perspective, having been in both and having also practiced in the like in a real world in clinic, what are the positives, if any? I mean, you're doing them, so you see, you see positives. What are the positives of this type of service delivery, basically telehealth? 
Yeah. So, you know, pre-pandemic, it really was about getting access to individuals who didn't have access, right? So for various reasons, people aren't able to access care. Either they live in remote areas or they don't have transportation. Sometimes they don't even have the funds to make that um that travel to their nearest clinic, their nearest hospital to get services. So in my mind, the number one problem that telehealth is solving is access. Obviously, there are caveats, right? You have to have the technology, you have to have internet service, you need to have a device to utilize it, but you are really closing a lot of barriers for a lot of people. Yeah, so you're you're basically letting somebody that couldn't get there, get there, or at least do it in their home, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And then How I about will say- the actual treatments you're delivering, the services you're providing is, are there benefits or are there instances where you might choose telehealth over in-person treatment? Well, obviously for hands-on physical types of treatment and modalities, you want to see the person, you want to touch the person, you want to see their environment. Ideally, you're doing this in their home if that's possible. Telehealth isn't the ideal model for it. But specifically for wellness, I think, again, you're breaking down even more barriers. So people may not have time um, to access this kind of care. And so you're really making it convenient for them. And so I found with both individual and um, group sessions in wellness that I'm able to um, get care to my clients when they need it. And that's something, especially in a pandemic, that is, you know, impossible to do in person. Now we're, at least in California, we're rolling out measures where we can start providing care in person and gathering, et cetera. But, you know, for over two months, people have felt socially isolated and they're getting trouble just finding somebody who's available, like figuring out who should I talk to? Who can help me? Where are they? Are they even taking new clients? All these things. um, Do they even have capacity? Yeah. Do they have capacity? And then, you know, not everybody's set up for telehealth, right? Like, yeah, we can see you, but once we open up. So for wellness, I think it's been really convenient for people um, to be able to access their phone, their laptops, their tablets, and learn new skills, get support, and especially the the community component. I honestly, I haven't done in-person groups um, at all in my practice in wellness um, because it's been an individual model. And with telehealth, I wasn't expecting to do groups. And the groups were just so successful that I realized that, you know, there's affordability factor. So it's easier for people to do more groups because it costs less than an individual session. I'm doing a lot of free groups as well. And that's easier for me to utilize my time to touch more people. They really just have to set out a time. There's no travel. They just make that one-time commitment. Um, of, you know, an hour or whatever it is that's scheduled um, to tune in and they're getting a sense of community, learning a new skill and taking time for themselves, which again, pre-pandemic, they might not have had the time to do because with travel, that becomes like a two yeah, hour exactly. thing. Versus you get in your car, minutes. 30 minutes there, 30 minutes back, exactly. how long the appointment is. Exactly. Yeah. Now you mentioned something about cost. In California, are there barriers or issues around reimbursement or a lot of the the work that you're doing is covered private pay or covered by insurance? How's that working for you? So, you know, I, I'm a cash-based business. So, you know, I try to provide my clients with the super bills so that they can get reimbursements. I'm um, recently started accepting the 
HSA, FSA funds um, to make it easier for people. So, you know, I, I can't really speak to how problematic it's been for certain individuals. I personally just make it easier if, if people are worried about insurance reimbursement and they can't afford sessions, then again, that's where I utilize um, groups with people with similar goals. And I have like pretty, pretty low <laughs> sliding scale fees because you know, it's, it's easier again for me to see more people and I don't want to turn anybody down um, that's having financial hardships. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I was talking with somebody, a colleague at the university the other day, and I was, I said something like, you know, I feel like cash practice or, you know, private pay where you're removing that third party payer is really the way healthcare should be because you're the, the, the decisions and the incentives are all aligned but the, that colleague of mine said, well, you know, you really have to worry about people that just can't afford. Right. Wouldn't exactly. be able to afford services without some kind of insurance coverage. So the idea of being able to, to not turn away people or have some sort of really low sliding scale or offer groups really helps kind of advance that issue that, you know, there are people that legitimately can't get care. You know, they, exactly. they just can't afford it. And whether or not their insurance pays for it, they probably couldn't pay the copay or, or, or whatever. So exactly some sort of this, there's there's some option for them. Right. Right. Um, and and it really, you know, it really does depend on the insurance as well. Like, you know, state to state. Yes, I know that there are different hurdles, but just the insurances themselves, they're just so different. And, you know, their reasoning for why they'll accept one claim and deny another can be pretty overwhelming and confusing. So for me, I have the luxury in my practice to say, you know what, I'm going to make it easier for you and you're going to get care no matter what. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about these groups then that you're running. How do you, how do you structure them? What does, what does a telehealth group for, I don't know, what's your, what's your most popular one? What is, what does that program look like and, and what can patients experience or clients experience when they go there? Yeah. So, you know, again, this is um, something that's relatively new for me since shelter in place because I was not expecting um, to, to do groups in this format, but I'm starting with four week sessions. So we meet once a week at the same time every week for four weeks. As I mentioned before, everybody gets, you know, initial one-on-one assessment, including like a personalized self-care plan and based on their goals, they're matched with other individuals and we're meeting at the same time for four weeks. So each week there's a new topic, a new theme, new skills that you're learning. And typically you have, again, another plan that you're taking away from it. So it really varies again on the individuals and what they want to work on. But at the end of the four weeks before that last session, I do another one-on-one with each individual and see if they'd like to continue working for another four weeks or if they wanted to, you know, just kind of take some time and work on the new skills that they've learned. So, you know, we, again, depending on um, what is important to the individuals, usually the first group is super basic and really diving into self-care, why it's important to take care of yourself. And we start with breathing. I think breathing is one of the most important and free and easy tools that we have access to anywhere and everywhere we are. So we practice controlled breathing. Um, And I teach a few simple strategies that are easy to remember, easy to do, Um, And then you end up with a homework assignment. So for the next week, you're practicing these different breathing strategies 
and, you know, measuring how you felt before doing it and after doing it. Yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds awesome. So it seems like the majority of the people then that are coming into these programs or at least reaching out to you in your program are not, they're, they're not in crisis mode, right? So, no, it's, so it's very much like a proactive, a proactive strategy. Yes. And I appreciate you bringing that up. So, you know, if somebody is in crisis as an individual practitioner, as an occupational therapist, I may not be the right fit for that person. So I definitely um, work with individuals who have their own psychotherapists who are also working with um, psychiatrists and, you know, other medical specialists, but crisis, especially group format, it's not the right fit yeah. if somebody's having, yeah, if somebody's in crisis, you know, I, again, having worked in, um, inpatient psych, um, and outpatient psych, I have all those resources. So, you know, if somebody comes to me and they need, you know, they need a higher level of care that I'm not able to provide, then I'm able to at least give them the resources so they know the next steps to take. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about kind of this idea of, of proactive care. Can you talk a little bit more just about the role of wellness, the OT's role in it, how you, you've talked about some of the strategies you help your clients with, but how does it work? Like say, say I want to, I'm feeling a little stressed about work. Let's say maybe I'm, I'm having problems with anxiety or stress related to work related pressure or something like that. What might be a first step? Is it coming to see somebody like you or is it trying to do something on my own? How does it work? Okay. So l- let me clarify clarify the question. So if somebody is seeking support and they're having specific issues, what are their first steps? Yes. Yes. So, you know, let's, let's be real. You're an occupational therapist as well. So most people don't even realize that an occupational therapist can help them with certain issues. Sometimes even the physical issues, they're not even aware of what OT does. Exactly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I will say that, that, you know, that's definitely a problem helping people understand that distinction between what is occupational therapy. And I, I believe you asked this question just before. So I think it kind of fits into this answer of why I think OT is so important in this wellness space is that we address both physical and emotional health issues, right? So, you know, we're covering a lot of ground that other providers may not be able to access because they're limited by their scope of practice. That being said, there's also just like that barrier of awareness of services available to people. I don't think that there are too many people out there that realize what OT can really do for them. Part of my work is really I'm trying to get it out there. Um, I'm using things like social media, probably not very successfully, <laughs> social media to educate people, but I'm, re- I'm reaching out to local community groups, right? So especially with mental health, NAMI is one, and I've worked with them in my free clinic as well when I was teaching to really just get clients over to me. So I'm lo- uh, reaching out to local organizations that provide care and are focused on wellness. I'm reaching out to local um, companies and businesses. And especially with the start of the pandemic um, in this country and with the tight restrictions that we have in our area, I started just providing free groups. I knew that people needed support. So I'm like, okay, what can I do? Started using Zoom to just provide 
free groups for different types of relaxation strategies and reaching out to communities, like no strings attached, just, hey, I think everybody needs some community, everybody needs some support, and everybody would benefit from learning a new coping skill. Yeah, so you kind so, of just provided the value out there, let pe- let it speak for itself, right? People exactly. were like, oh, this is, this is something I could do after this, right? Exactly. Yeah, how do you see telehealth and telehealth in regards to your practice and wellness and holistic therapy, kind of this proactive health approach. How do you see telehealth playing a role in that after this pandemic? Because at some point, hopefully, the doors will open and we'll be back to shaking hands with each other. Do you see a role for telehealth in in a practice like yours going forward? I I definitely do. Um, Again, pre-pandemic, didn't even think about utilizing telehealth again. I love like that face-to-face contact. I feel like, okay, I need to see you in your environment, even if we're just focused on emotional wellness, because it tells me so much, but I, it's, it's really working well. I'm getting positive feedback from clients. I'm really realizing that it is filling this gap for people that are busy, may have transportation issues or whatever the reason is that they're not seeking um, this type of care. So I plan to use telehealth indefinitely, even, you know, as the restrictions start to roll back and, um, you know, we start providing face-to-face care. Yeah. And like I think I mentioned earlier, I think the, the, the ability to offer those high impact, you know, high value treatments and services over telehealth, hopefully will allow it to be one of those things that gets reimbursed later and that we're able to right. continue into the future. Because it does, like you said, it increases access, decreases costs. There's just a lot of benefits to it. Mm-hmm. What are some of the drawbacks that you've noticed practicing telehealth? Yeah. Well, I mean, the technology is the limiting factor, right? Like Uh the technology is bringing us this resource, but it's also the limiting factor. So, you know, you have to have certain equipment. You need a smartphone or a tablet or a computer um, that has video access. You need high-speed internet in order to actually hear me in real time and be able to see my face and for P to be able to see your face. Um, So for individuals that just aren't tech savvy or don't have the support to set it up for them. Um, or again, they don't have these actual resources, um, to access, you know, this equipment and internet, basically, they're not going to be able to partake in it. It, it's just not going to work. Yeah. And then I was actually reading an article the other day, a research article in like, I think it's published by HP, but it was about latency in telecommunications and what that does to patient perceptions of healthcare services or just people's perception in general. And it's funny because you talk about seeing somebody in real time, hearing somebody in real time, and we take that for granted in, in the clinic. But when you take that and put that on the internet and you're talking with somebody who's already having, maybe they're a little unsure about the technology, mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out how it works. And then on top of it, you're skipping or you're freezing or, or whatever. You see that being very, yeah, frustrating to to say the least. Right. Um, from a treatment modality, from a treatment perspective, what are the main drawbacks? Obviously, you can't touch people, yeah. but are there any big things that you got in when you got into health, telehealth? You're like, oh wow, I didn't account for this, or this was something that yeah. kind of a, something we need to plan for. So part of this answer and what you just said is active listening is huge in what we do period as OTs, but especially in, um, you know, mental health care and wellness, it's very important. And so again, if there's that latency, then there's some disconnect. So it's harder to really build that trust. 
with your client if they're not feeling heard, literally. Yeah. <laughs> and eye contact is huge. So again, when I'm doing groups, I need these groups to be small because I want to make sure that I'm seeing the client and the client is seeing me. And there's so much that we get from nonverbal um, body language, right? So I'm able to assess really somebody's attention. Are they checking out? Are they understanding what I'm, I'm talking about? Um, you know, is it, is it really hitting them? So, you know, being able to assess someone's response to treatment is really, really important. And there can be a barrier with telehealth, again, with the latency, or if you have this like big group or if the lighting's off or the picture's off, you know, by a little bit, then you're missing so many components that you would be able to gauge if you were in person with, you know, with your client. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Have you, do you run your clients through kind of like a tips sheet before they get started? Like position yourself here, make sure that there's no bright light behind you. Are there practical tips that you give to folks? I, I don't know if this is the most effective way, but I like short videos. I don't create the videos, but you know, I, I scour YouTube for like troubleshooting and tips because, you know, someone else already did the work and did a good job of explaining it. So, you know, I'll send over videos again, that requires you to be tech savvy, right. To uh -huh. be able to access and open it up. But I find strategies like that are better. I, you know, with telehealth, there are, there's even more documentation for the client. There's even more things for them to sign. I feel like I have a little bit um, more paperwork that I'm sending them after our group that reviews what we did and gives them things that they can continue to work on, which that might be something that we're going through in person if I, it was an in-person um, session. So um, I find like the videos are just a different method of delivery. So there's just not more to read, more to review and, um, more you know, and all that, yeah. more paperwork. Exactly. So, um, short tutorial videos is usually what I send over. Oh no, that's a great strategy. How about you kind of mentioned about there's more documentation for patients. Yeah. Describe <laughs> some of that. I'm sure there's some, there's some kind of consent involved and there's some kind of right to, to video, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I probably have a little too much redundancy um, in my documentation, but, you know, I have, obviously, you know, we've got um, the HIPAA and privacy policies um, that we need to provide our patients with, but I'm doing both individual and group telehealth, and my group telehealth also has individual telehealth components, and the language is different because in groups, oh, there, are, yeah. there are other individuals that are participating and you have to maintain their privacy as well. So, you know, I've got, if you're doing groups, you have two sets of telehealth forms that you need to read and sign. Um, and then I also have, because when, you know, I'm doing my intake, I'm like, you might as well look through everything and sign everything because things will change and I might be able to work with you in person. So I also have con the consent form that allows, it's different, telehealth is different than in person, right? And so I'm getting new clients um, that I haven't actually been able to see and assess in person. So I have the forms for being able to treat them in person as well. So it's, you know, it kind of piles up. No one's complained yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we were, you know, part of the work that I do with, with the Department of Behavioral Health here is we've, basically set something up, a, a system for telehealth for them. And their big thing was about how do we get consent and consent for mm -hmm. telehealth. And like, you even have to worry about people being in the room, right? That might not exactly. be, you know, and, have and, access you, know, or you don't want to have necessarily have access to the person's personal information and all that. 
Exactly. So, you know, that, that onus is on me, but I also have to make sure that my clients are respecting um, those rules as well. So they're in a private space where no one could overhear the conversation or see what's going on. Oh, especially in groups, I'm sure. Yeah. Especially in groups. Exactly. Because there are other people talking. Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, any last minute practical tips or advice that you would give to clinicians that might be wanting to start a telehealth practice or start into this realm of virtual service delivery? I would say definitely take the time to educate yourself on all the different um, technology that's available. You're probably going to have to invest in a few things. You know, you want a camera that actually will show your face properly. Um, You might need to purchase lighting, um, microphone or headset for sound. Again, you you know, you want to reduce any of the barriers to care, especially using the technology. You know, some people might need even to upgrade their internet service. And there's um, so many platform choices out there. So, you know, take some time, play around. I definitely did Um, mock sessions, mock groups. I have a really supportive um, base of family and friends that actually to this day, I'm still doing um, my, my practice groups with them because they want to keep doing it. Uh, They're not my clients. They're, they're just my, they're just my friends. They're reaping the rewards is what they're doing. Yeah, they they don't, they don't want it to end. So, you know, so I've been doing that for, for quite a while. You really want to test things out um, when you're doing it over telehealth because you have to really understand what is my client seeing? What is my client hearing? Are they going to be able to understand? So my test groups were really just, I'm going to do this whole group in front of you and I want to get feedback. How can I make this better? What were some problems that came up? So you, you have to practice. You can't just jump right in without taking the time to test everything out um, and make, you know, you, you have to see what it's like on the other end for your client in order for it to be successful. Yeah, no, that's a great tip, practicing ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Are there any resources that you would send a clinician to that might be interested in telehealth? Any um, so, yeah, I can probably just email it to you. There is an occupational therapist who actually compiled a, a list, you know, often with, with telehealth, I think of online um Oh my gosh, I'm drawing Service a blank. Delivers. EHR systems. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, you know, um, there are different platforms for writing your notes, for taking payments, you know, even insurance billing. And some of those actually have telehealth attached to them. Um, oh, so, it's integrated. I mean, yeah, so th- there's there's many ways to do it, right? It's really up to how complicated you want it to be and how much you're willing to spend. There, there are lists all over. I mean, I've looked up lists. I've read articles. I like comb through all the different professional Facebook groups I'm in. I posted questions. I tried out all the different platforms. There is um, one OT who wrote an article who has a pretty comprehensive list. I can send that over to you. I'll find it and I'll send it over to you if you want to maybe link that. Oh yeah, And I'm happy to share my experience with anybody. And you know, they're like, Technology is forever growing, right? Forever changing. Um, so, you know, if if you're listening to this like a month from now, there might be a new platform. Exactly. Yeah. Something, something else sprung up. Right. 
or there might be an issue with a platform that we weren't even aware of. So, you know, I would like ask questions. If you're on a Facebook group, just put the question out there. People have been super supportive in giving their experiences. And, you know, yeah, again, you have to test it out because it depends on your population. I got, um, you know, people referred me to certain platforms and they were mostly for pediatrics and they really just didn't work for my client base. So like, you know, there's no one place. You're going to have to do a little bit of research and you're going to have to test it out. But again, I'll send you um, the one link that I found really useful. Yeah. Cool deal. Well, where can people find you on the interwebs, on social media, all of that good stuff? Yeah, so I am, my website is otbayarea.com. And I, you know, that's for clients. But if you want to reach me as a therapist, I am happy, you know, I've been doing it for a long time. I still mentor my old students. And I'm happy to take the time to talk to any new or um, seasoned OTs that are interested in doing what I'm doing, you know, it's like, y- you got to pay it back. Somebody helped you along the way. So um, exactly, yeah. my contact information is on there. If you want to reach out to me, all of my social media links are on there as well. Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. <laughs> so um, that all the places, is under right? <laughs> all the places. Yeah. So, you know, my name is Sheila Ivlev. You can look me up, but probably my website's the easiest place to start and everything's linked on there. Okay, great. Well, we'll put all that information in the show notes too. Sheila, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sheila from OT Bay Area Mental Health and Emotional Wellness Clinic out of San Francisco. I think one of the things, just re-listening to this interview as I'm preparing it now, that kind of struck me too, that I didn't mention in the intro, was the the entire idea of how the technology impacts our clients' perception of the services that we deliver and the services they receive. We mentioned it a little bit, how it's very difficult to pick up on micro-expressions or nonverbal cues and other subtle emotional and really human characteristics that our patients might be exhibiting that is that's difficult for us to pick up over a screen right we even talked about how some of that the latency effect and how maybe you've got a a platform or an internet connection that's spotty and you have the the client or you your internet service is causing the the session to skip or to freeze and how that can impact a client's perception of not only the quality of the healthcare services that they're receiving, but your competence as a clinician. I was reading an article, I think I mentioned it in the interview from, it was published by HP, but it was, it, it aimed to study what happened or what happened to the perceptions of individuals who were receiving communication over telehealth when the latency increased. So when there was, you know, some more drag or maybe it froze a little bit or there was a little bit of a delay. And what is interesting is that the folks that were on the receiving end of communication, when the latency increased, and they were using things that I'm not prepared to talk about, you know, like hers and microseconds and all this kind of stuff. But when the, the takeaway is that as the latency increased, the people, the individuals receiving the, the communication began perceiving the communicator, so the person doing the talking, as less attentive, 
and in some cases less intelligent because of the delayed response. So again, it's something that we need to be concerned about and cognizant of as, as we set up telehealth systems and and methods for delivering care virtually to clients is that as much as we may or may not want to admit it, technology glitches can negatively, really negatively impact our client's perception of the quality of the services they're receiving and even our skills as a clinician. So that was one of the the bigger takeaways that's just now hitting me. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed this interview. I hope you pulled some nuggets away from it. Uh, We'll see you in two weeks. Until then, be healthy, be safe. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.